Section 17 of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 2 by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. During this year there was a total cessation of all correspondence between Dr. Johnson and me, without any coldness on either side, but merely from procrastination continued from day to day. And as I was not in London, I had no opportunity of enjoying his company and recording his conversation. To supply this blank, I shall present my readers with some collectania obligingly furnished to me by the Reverend Dr. Maxwell of Falkland in Ireland, sometime assistant preacher at the temple, and for many years the social friend of Johnson, who spoke of him with a very kind regard. My acquaintance with that great and venerable character commenced in the year 1754. I was introduced to him by Mr. Grierson, His Majesty's printer at Dublin, a gentleman of uncommon learning and great wit and vivacity. Footnote. Son of the learned Mrs. Grierson, who was patronised by the late Lord Granville and was the editor of several of the classics, Boswell. End of footnote. Mr. Grierson died in Germany at the age of twenty-seven. Dr. Johnson highly respected his abilities, and often observed that he possessed more extensive knowledge than any man of his years he had ever known. His industry was equal to his talents, and he particularly excelled in every species of philological learning, and was perhaps the best critic of the age he lived in. I must always remember with gratitude my obligation to Mr. Grierson for the honour and happiness of Dr. Johnson's acquaintance and friendship, which continued uninterrupted and undiminished to his death, a connection that was at once the pride and happiness of my life. What pity it is that so much wit and good sense as he continually exhibited in conversation should perish unrecorded. Few persons quitted his company without perceiving themselves wiser and better than they were before. On serious subjects he flashed the most interesting conviction before his auditors, and upon lighter topics you might have supposed Albano Musas de Monte Locutas. Footnote pontificum libros annosa volumina vatum dictitet albano musas in monte locutas then swear transported that the sacred nine pronounced on alba's top each hallowed line francis horace epistles book two epistle one line twenty six end of footnote though i can hope to add but little to the celebrity of so exalted a character by any communications I can furnish, yet out of pure respect to his memory, I will venture to transmit to you some anecdotes concerning him which fell under my own observation. The very minutiae of such a character must be interesting, and may be compared to the filings of diamonds. In politics he was deemed a Tory, but certainly not so in the obnoxious or party sense of the term, 
for while he asserted the legal and salutary prerogatives of the crown he no less respected the constitutional liberties of the people whiggism at the time of the revolution he said was accompanied by certain principles but latterly as a mere party distinction under walpole and the pelhams it was no better than the politics of stock-jobbers and the religion of infidels see ante book one page one three one where boswell says that johnson afterwards honestly acknowledged the merit of walpole End footnote. he detested the idea of governing by parliamentary corruption and asserted most strenuously that a prince steadily and conspicuously pursuing the interests of his people would not fail of parliamentary concurrence a prince of ability he contended might and should be the directing soul and spirit of his own administration in short his own minister and not the mere head of a party and then and not till then would the royal dignity be sincerely respected johnson seemed to think that a certain degree of crown influence over the houses of parliament not meaning a corrupt and shameful dependence was very salutary nay even necessary in our mixed government for said he if the members were under no crown influence and disqualified from receiving any gratification from court and resembled as they possibly might pym and hazelrig and other stubborn and sturdy members of the long parliament the wheels of government would be totally obstructed such men would oppose merely to show their power from envy jealousy and perversity of disposition and not gaining themselves would hate and oppose all who did not loving the person of the prince and conceiving they owed him little gratitude from the mere spirit of insolence and contradiction they would oppose and thwart him upon all occasions the inseparable imperfection annexed to all human governments consisted he said in not being able to create a sufficient fund of virtue and principle to carry the laws into due and effectual execution wisdom might plan but virtue alone could execute and where could sufficient virtue be found a variety of delegated and often discretionary powers must be entrusted somewhere which if not governed by integrity and conscience would necessarily be abused till at last the constable would sell his for a shilling this excellent person was sometimes charged with abetting slavish and arbitrary principles of government nothing in my opinion could be a grosser calumny and misrepresentation for how can it be rationally supposed that he should adopt such pernicious and absurd opinions who supported his philosophical character with so much dignity was extremely jealous of his personal liberty and independence and could not brook the smallest appearance of neglect or insults even from the highest personages 
but let us view him in some instances of more familiar life. His general mode of life during my acquaintance seemed to be pretty uniform. About twelve o'clock I commonly visited him, and frequently found him in bed, or declaiming over his tea, which he drank very plentifully. He generally had a levy of morning visitors, chiefly men of letters. Footnote. His acquaintance was sought by persons of the first eminence in literature, and his house, in respect of the conversations there, became an academy. Hawkins's Johnson, page 329, in a footnote. Hawkesworth, Goldsmith, Murphy, Langton, Stevens, Beauclair, etc., etc., and sometimes learned ladies, particularly I remember a French lady of wit and fashion doing him the honour of a visit. Footnote. Probably Madame de Boufflers, see post under November the 12th, 1775, and a footnote. He seemed to me to be considered as a kind of public oracle whom everybody thought they had a right to visit and consult, and doubtless they were well rewarded. Footnote. To talk in public, to think in solitude, to read and hear, to inquire and answer inquiries is the business of a scholar. Rasselas, Chapter 8 Miss Burney mentions an amusing instance of a consultation by letter. The letter was dated from the Orkneys and cost Dr. Johnson eighteen pence. The writer, a clergyman, says he labours under a most peculiar misfortune for which he can give no account, and which is that though he very often writes letters to his friends and others, he never gets any answers. He entreats, therefore, that Dr. Johnson will take this into consideration and explain to him to what so strange a thing may be attributed. Madame D'Arblay's diary and a footnote. I never could discover how he found time for his compositions. Footnote. How he, in square brackets, swift, spent the rest of his time, and how he employed his hours of study has been inquired with hopeless curiosity. For who can give an account of another's studies? Swift was not likely to admit any to his privacies, or to impart a minute account of his business or his leisure. Johnson's Works, Volume 8, page 208, and a footnote. He declaimed all the morning, then went to dinner at a tavern, where he commonly stayed late, and then drank his tea at some friend's house, over which he loitered a great while, but seldom took supper. I fancy he must have read and wrote chiefly in the night, for I can scarcely recollect that he ever refused going with me to a tavern, and he often went to Ranley, which he deemed a place of innocent recreation. He frequently gave all the silver in his pocket to the poor who watched him between his house and the tavern where he dined. Footnote. He loved the poor says Mrs. Piozzi, anecdotes, as I never yet saw anyone else do, with an earnest desire to make them happy. What signifies, says someone, giving halfpence to common beggars? I only lay it out in gin or tobacco. 
and why should they be denied such sweetness of their existence says johnson the harm done by this indiscriminate charity has been pointed out by fielding in his covent garden journal for june the second seventeen fifty two he took as the motto for the paper Bobone nete frustrere insanus et tu which he translates my good friend do not deceive yourself for with all thy charity thou art also a silly fellow giving our money to common beggars he describes as a kind of bounty that is a crime against the public johnson once allowed post seventeen eighty in mr langton's collection that one might give away five hundred pounds a year to those that importune in the streets and not do any good End of footnote. he walked the streets at all hours and said he was never robbed for the rogues knew he had little money nor had the appearance of having much footnote. he was once attacked the weather by robbers is not made clear. See post under February the seventh, seventeen seventy five, and a footnote. Though the most accessible and communicative man alive, yet when he suspected he was invited to be exhibited, he constantly spurned the invitation. Two young women from Staffordshire visited him when I was present to consult him on the subject of Methodism to which they were inclined come said he you pretty fools dine with maxwell and me at the mitre and we will talk over that subject which they did and after dinner he took one of them upon his knee and fondled her for half an hour together upon a visit to me at a country lodging near twickenham he asked what sort of society i had there i told him but indifferent as they chiefly consisted of opulent traders retired from business he said he never much liked that class of people for sir said he they have lost the civility of tradesmen without acquiring the manners of a gentleman Footnote. perhaps it was this class of people which is described in the following passage it was never against people of coarse life that his contempt was expressed while poverty of sentiment in men who considered themselves to be company for the parlour as he called it was what he would not bear piozzi's anecdotes end of footnote johnson was much attached to london he observed that a man stored his mind better there than anywhere else and that in remote situations a man's body might be feasted but his mind was starved and his faculties apt to degenerate from want of exercise and competition no place he said cured a man's vanity or arrogance so well as london for as no man was either great or good per se but as compared with others not so good or great he was sure to find in the metropolis many his equals and some his superiors he observed that a man in london was in less danger of falling in love indiscreetly than anywhere else 
for there the difficulty of deciding between the conflicting pretensions of a vast variety of objects kept him safe he told me that he had frequently been offered country preferment if he would consent to take orders but he could not leave the improved society of the capital or consent to exchange the exhilarating joys and splendid decorations of public life for the obscurity insipidity and uniformity of remote situations speaking of mr hart canon of windsor and writer of the history of gustavus adolphus he much commended him as a scholar and a man of the most companionable talents he had ever known he said the defects in his history proceeded not from imbecility but from foppery he loved he said the old black letter books they were rich in matter though their style was inelegant wonderfully so considering how conversant the writers were with the best models of antiquity burton's anatomy of melancholy he said was the only book that ever took him out of bed two hours sooner than he wished to rise he frequently exhorted me to set about writing a history of ireland and archly remarked there had been some good irish writers and that one irishman might at least aspire to be equal to another he had great compassion for the miseries and distresses of the irish nation particularly the papists and severely reprobated the barbarous debilitating policy of the british government which he said was the most detestable mode of persecution to a gentleman who hinted such policy might be necessary to support the authority of the english government he replied by saying let the authority of the english government perish rather than be maintained by iniquity better would it be to restrain the turbulence of the natives by the authority of the sword and to make them amenable to law and justice by an effectual and vigorous police than to grind them to powder by all manner of disabilities and incapacities better said he to hang or drown people at once than by an unrelenting persecution to beggar and starve them footnote dr t campbell in his survey of the south of ireland seventeen seventy seven says by one law of the penal code if a papist have a horse worth fifty or five hundred pounds a protestant may become the purchaser upon paying him down five by another of the same code a son may say to his father sir if you don't give me what money i want i'll turn discoverer and in spite of you and my elder brother too on whom at marriage you settled your estate i shall become heir father o'leary in his remarks on wesley's letter published in seventeen eighty post hebrides august fifteen seventeen seventy three says he has seen the venerable matron after twenty-four years marriage banished from the perjured husband's house though it was proved in open court that for six months before his marriage he went to mass but the law requires that he shall be a year and a day of the same religion 
Burke wrote in 1792, the castle, in the government in Dublin, considers the outlawry, or what at least I look on as such, of the great mass of the people as an unalterable maxim in the government of Ireland. Burke's correspondence and footnote. The moderation and humanity of the present times have in some measure justified the wisdom of his observations. Dr. Johnson was often accused of prejudices, nay, antipathy, with regard to the natives of Scotland. Surely so illiberal a prejudice never entered his mind, and it is well known many natives of that respectable country possessed a large share in his esteem nor were any of them ever excluded from his good offices as far as opportunity permitted true it is he considered the scotch nationally as a crafty designing people eagerly attentive to their own interest and too apt to overlook the claims and pretensions of other people while they confine their benevolence in a manner exclusively to those of their own country they expect to share in the good offices of other people. Now, said Johnson, this principle is either right or wrong. If right, we should do well to imitate such conduct. If wrong, we cannot too much detest it. Being solicited to compose a funeral sermon for the daughter of a tradesman, he naturally inquired into the character of the deceased, and, being told she was remarkable for her humility and condescension to inferiors, he observed that those were very laudable qualities, but it might not be so easy to discover who the lady's inferiors were. Of a certain player, he remarked, that his conversation usually threatened and announced more than it performed that he fed you with a continual renovation of hope, to end in a constant succession of disappointment. Footnote. Of Sheridan's writing on elocution, Johnson said, they were a continual renovation of hope, and an unvaried succession of disappointments. Johnson's works in a footnote. When exasperated by contradiction, he was apt to treat his opponents with too much acrimony, as, Sir, you don't see your way through that question. Sir, you talk the language of ignorance. On my observing to him that a certain gentleman had remained silent the whole evening, in the midst of a very brilliant and learned society, Sir, said he, the conversation overflowed and drowned him. His philosophy, though austere and solemn, was by no means morose and cynical, and never blunted the laudable sensibilities of his character, or exempted him from the influence of the tender passions. Want of tenderness, he always alleged, was want of parts and was no less a proof of stupidity than depravity. Speaking of Mr. Hanway, who published 
an eight days journey from london to portsmouth jonas said he acquired some reputation by travelling abroad but lost it all by travelling at home Footnote. in seventeen fifty three jonas hanway published his travels to persia though his journey was completed in eight days he gave a relation of it in two octavo volumes hawkins's johnson page three five two and a footnote of the passion of love he remarked that its violence and ill effects were much exaggerated for who knows any real sufferings on that head more than from the exorbitancy of any other passion End of section 17